Hi, I'm Saul Griffith. I'm the author of The Big Switch and the founder of Rewiring Australia. I grew up in Sydney. My first job was in the steel mill in Newcastle and my second was in an aluminium smelter in Western Sydney. I moved to the US in 1998 and I've recently returned. While I was there, I enjoyed success as an inventor and entrepreneur in Silicon Valley starting technology companies. I've worked extensively with the US government, including modeling electrification of the US and global economy as the solution to the majority of our emissions. I wrote The Big Switch to tell the story of what Australia has to win in rapidly and aggressively tackling climate change. We've been politically lost in a culture war about what we have to lose, and we've forgotten to think about the upside for us. We are still the lucky country, and we can use that luck to lead on climate action. We have the best renewables in the world. We had good governance. We can lead the world in getting emissions to zero. We can lead the world in saving money in our suburbs and towns. We can lead the world in creating jobs and export industries in our regions. We can show by example how to make a better world for our children. Black Ink, the publisher of this book, kindly gave us the rights to read audio versions of the book ourselves. So, we've partnered with a number of legendary Australians, all of them exceptional in their fields, mostly sporting fields, to bring these ideas to a bigger audience. These are people who are no strangers to winning, and for our country and for our children, want us to win on climate as well. I thank them for reading this book with me, for you, for our country, and for our world. Hi, my name's Ace Bucken. I'm a professional surfer and environmental activist. I'm passionate about solving climate change because I've been lucky enough to spend my days and my years in and beside the ocean doing what I love. I've also got three children and I want to see them live in a planet that's thriving, not just surviving. I'll be reading chapter six, Cheap and Getting Cheaper. Renewable energy is already cheaper than fossil fuels in many cases. Increasing production rates further cuts the cost of a technology. Making enough renewable energy, batteries and electric vehicles to address climate change will more than halve the cost of them. If we keep growing at the current growth rate, we could fully decarbonise the planet by 2040. We have the technology to create a carbon-free future, but can we afford to make the switch? It may seem sacrilegious to discuss costs when considering the future of our planet, our species and the beautiful critters and plants we share Earth with. It's dismal to have to justify the economic cost of doing the things that will make our future better. But in this chapter, I sharpen my pencil and show you how, in fact, saving the planet will save everyone money. In his excellent new book, The New Climate War, Michael Mann plainly lays out the delay tactics being used by the fossil fuel industry. Sowing confusion, slowing things down with bureaucracy and selling unlikely miracle technologies are how the industry will try to hold onto its profits at your children's peril. The Australian government is a perfect example of this. The brilliantly simple phrase, technology not taxes, sounds like what we would all like. A technological wonder to save the day. But this masks the urgency of the actions required and the fact that not only are we not currently taxing fossil fuels, we are subsidising them. It's a government's job to lead its people into a future that's better than the present for its citizens. This is not a job that requires sitting on one's ass, waiting for the solution to happen. It demands setting policy based on the best advice and data available. One has to have an opinion about the future to lead, a vision, 
That's why people love John F. Kennedy's We Choose to Go to the Moon speech. It set an agenda that a whole nation, in fact the whole world, could get behind. As explained in the last chapter, it is abundantly clear that the electrification is going to do most of the heavy lifting in addressing climate change. This has been obvious to many for a decade now, but it still eludes governments on both sides of Australian politics. No one has dared set a national electrification agenda, yet that is what we need. To wait for a newer or cheaper technology to come along is to delay too long. We already know, and a hundred years of data supports this, that when it comes to technology, much of the cost reduction comes from learning by doing. The more we use a new technology, the cheaper it gets. As we electrify and decarbonise, Australia will surf this wave of cost reduction. Technological improvements in the last two decades have already dropped the cost of critical technologies, solar, wind and batteries, to below that of fossil fuels. The scale of decarbonising the world's energy supply is sufficient to drop the cost of renewables by half, such that they will trounce the cost of fossil fuels. In this chapter, I'll explain why. Already, generating clean electricity is extremely cheap and getting cheaper, and some of it will become cheaper still, provided we don't screw up with the wrong rules and regulations. When energy nerds compare the prices of different types of energy, they talk about the levelised cost of energy. This is how much particular technology costs per kilowatt hour, when all its lifetime costs are taken into account, such as the cost of building, operating and decommissioning a plant. The asset management firm Lazard, which tracks levelised cost of energy to guide investments, has data showing how much cheaper renewable energy sources are compared to fossil fuels. Its latest report places utility-scale solar at about 3.7 cents per kilowatt and wind power at about 4.1 cents per kilowatt, while natural gas clocks in at around 5.6 and coal at 10.9. These impressively low LCOE numbers refer to utility-scale installations. Rooftop solar can be even cheaper. If you're generating electricity yourself, you don't have to pay for distribution. Australia has lowered the cost of rooftop generation so much that behind the meter energy, that is, energy generated on our rooftops, without relying on a utility, is cheaper than the cost of distribution alone from a centralised plant. We can't make all the energy we'll need in the future this way, but we can make an awful lot of it, and it is already cheap and getting cheaper. A fellow friend and Aussie expat, Andrew Birchie Birch, wrote an influential piece about replicating the Australian model of rooftop solar in the US. He showed how most of the costs in the US are soft costs, or those not directly tied to hardware. These include permits inspection, overheads, transaction costs and sales. The Department of Energy agrees with him and its current $1 per watt target is focused on eliminating soft costs. Australians don't tolerate heavy-handed bureaucracy well, and hence we have succeeded in eliminating soft costs in solar. We need to take the same attitude to heat pumps, cars, vehicle charging infrastructure and household batteries to ensure that future savings are passed on to households, not nabbed by bureaucracy. Here is the transformative point about rooftop solar. Because there are no transmission and distribution costs, it can be phenomenally cheap. Even if utility-scale generation were free, we don't know how to transmit it and distribute it to you and sell it to you for less than the cost of rooftop solar. Transmission, distribution and billing costs are often more than half the cost of Australian electricity and add up to as much as 15 cents per kilowatt. This doesn't mean the whole world will run on solar, but if we are looking to make the lowest cost energy system, 
An awful lot of our energy will come from our rooftops and our communities. Renewables are going to get even cheaper. Wind and solar are getting cheap so quickly that it's even hard for innovators to keep up. I started Makani Power, a kite-powered wind energy company in 2006. The idea was to produce wind energy at 3 to 4 cents per kilowatt, cheaper than natural gas and 5 to 6 times cheaper than other wind-powered electricity at the time. The project was truly awesome, building wings the size of 747s, tethered by a giant cable that flew in circles at 200 miles per hour, undergoing 8 Gs of acceleration while producing megawatts of electricity. With investments from Google, the company followed an exciting development trajectory, culminating in an offshore deployment and demonstration in Norway in partnership with Shell. In the meantime, however, the wind industry at large also made historic strides and is now routinely deploying turbines at 4 to 5 cents per kilowatt. In 2020, Makani shut down due to this evaporated advantage. The technology and execution were sound, but the industry found its own way to slash costs just by improvements that come deploying at massive scale. Although Makani's technology didn't win the cost battle, it was part of an enormous movement and ecosystem of global innovators responsible for driving down costs and making wind, solar and batteries competitive with fossil fuels. In 2011, I started another company, Sunfolding, with Layla Madrone and Jim McBride. We initially focused on building tracking devices, machines that make sure that solar technology follows the path of the sun through the sky accurately. But the relentless march of photovoltaics price improvements beat us out of that game too, and we pivoted, as they say annoyingly in the Silicon Valley, to tracking devices for PV. We are still in the game and are now selling our technology into industrial solar plants at basement level prices. That comes out at around $0.02 cents per kilowatt lower than we ever imagined, and far lower than any fossil-generated electricity. There are two ways to reduce the cost of energy. One is by inventing better mousetraps. The other is by producing mousetraps in gobsmacking quantities. The first, called learning by researching, is typically measured by cumulative investment. The second, learning by doing, is measured by cumulative total production. Makani was about building an entirely better mousetrap but it couldn't make mousetraps in quantity. Sunfolding was one of many small component improvements. It was an invention, but it wasn't the whole mousetrap. It was like a better mousetrap spring. Sunfolding's tracking technology is good for taking 5 to 10 cents out of the roughly $1 per watt. Half of this cost saving was in the hardware we invented, but crucially, half was in reducing installation labor costs. It is these small efficiencies in materials and labor that typify the learning by doing cost savings. As these examples illustrate, and as empirical studies have shown, we must invest heavily in both these capacities to maximize long-term cost reductions in zero carbon energy. It is learning by doing that gets the job done most predictably. As we've seen, the solar and wind industries are improving, getting cheaper and cheaper with every generation of innovation. Learning by doing improvements are measured in learning rates, defined as the percentage by which the price falls after investment in a technology has doubled. One of the first observations of these learning rates is known as Wright's Law, governing the cost of aeroplanes and the equivalent for automobiles. For example, tracking the decrease in the price of Ford's Model T as production increased, as shown in Figure 6.2, Moore's Law. The jaw-dropping exponential increase in integrated circuit density can be viewed as a version of this same idea. 
In the case of electricity generation, solar PV is learning at a rate of about 22% and wind at about 12%, as fast as or faster than fossil fuels during their early 20th century cost reduction heyday. For solar, this approximate 20% reduction in module cost per doubling of installed capacity has become known as Swanson's Law, after Richard Swanson, the founder of SunPower Corporation. Currently, about 250 gigawatts of wind and 125 gigawatts of solar are installed around the world. To electrify everything, we will need about 10,000 to 20,000 gigawatts of electrical power. The exact number depends on how the world population grows and what quality of life is enjoyed by what percentage of humans. That means the cumulative production of solar panels and wind turbines still needs to double in scale many times to reach the capacity we need. If costs are falling at 20% with each doubling, after three doublings the cost will be about 51% of where it started, after four doublings 41%, and after five doublings only 33%. Given the scale of growth required, there is ample opportunity to bring costs down even further, making renewables even cheaper than their fossil competition. Pause on that thought for a moment. If we commit to wind and solar at sufficient scale to address climate change, that commitment alone will likely more than halve the cost of renewables. Yet again, a nail in the coffin of fossil fuels. Electricity will finally, well almost, be too cheap to meter, as they used to say about nuclear power. All of this represents a rare opportunity for industry, small and large. The myths of Silicon Valley hold that disruption is always good and that progress is made by unconventional founders turning the world on its head. That model has worked in software, but in hardware, especially in infrastructure, it doesn't really work. These fields are naturally conservative due to the graver consequences of failure and the need to guarantee machines that work reliably for 20 years or more. As we've seen, progress is predictably achieved through consistent investments in research, coupled with manufacturing at massive scale. We do need startups to innovate, and we even need crazy breakthrough ideas, if only because they inspire us to think bigger. But what we need most is large companies to seize on these innovations and scale them up, and for governments to commit to an energy strategy that enables those companies to make appropriate long-term capital investments. We need a national strategy that replaces technology, not taxes, with commitment and capital. When we commit, the capital will go there, and the cost will come down and the electrified future will be the low-cost, abundant energy future we have always been hoping for. It's already underway. If we take these growth rates of the critical technologies, we can ask ourselves two simple questions. One, how much cheaper will it get? And two, when will this cheapness get us to zero emissions? The International Renewable Energy Agency keeps statistics on the installed base of global renewables. Looking over the past 10 years, we see growth rates in hydroelectricity that average 2.5%, marine energy at 0.5%, wind 12.5%, solar 22.2%, bioenergy at 6.1%, and geothermal at 3.6%. Those are pretty astonishing numbers. If we merely keep increasing our production rates of wind, solar, hydro, bioenergy and other renewables that will supply all of the world's energy before 2040. Of course, this is achieved through the magic of exponential growth, but it does tell you we are on an inevitable path of electrification. 
It tells us that we can do it and that we are already growing the critical industries nearly quickly enough. Not only that, but because of the learning curves we have just discussed, the 30 times increase in solar production will lead to cost reductions of 80%. In the future, solar will cost 20% of what it does today, and it is already cheap. For wind, it will mean cost reductions of 65%. Batteries are dropping in price even more quickly. To those who tell you it can't be done, you can respond quite simply. It is already being done, and we could make it go even faster. 